Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. All right, uh, we are going to wrap up a uh, series today uh, on the subject of apologetics. Uh, We're talking about the defense of the Christian faith in this series. Again, uh, one more time, the passage that we're using in this series is uh, from 1 Peter 3.15. Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So uh, my hope that is for the past four weeks and then after today as well, that that you'll be uh, encouraged and strengthened in your own faith, that you'll see that, that this is not a blind faith. We have a lot of evidence for our faith, but it will also empower you to share your faith, uh, knowing that you might have a few more answers than you realize that you have. Uh, So, so far we have approached this topic uh, from a very analytical perspective. Uh, We've looked at the historical evidence for Jesus. We've looked at the scientific evidence for God. We've looked at the archaeological evidence for scripture. Uh, Today we're going to continue in the series itself, but uh, we're going to step away from the analytical side and look at another area of apologetics. So uh, I want to set this message up uh, by just telling you about a couple of friends that Emily and I have uh, back in Florida. Uh, we went to church together with this couple. They've, they've been married uh, at the time for uh, oh, 10 or so years, uh, maybe a little more than that. And, and for uh, their marriage, they'd really struggled to conceive a child, just uh, never been able to, to uh, have children. Uh, they, they tried everything, and ultimately... Uh, they attempted, uh, it's called, I think it's called an embryo adoption. It's where you take uh, someone else's embryo and it's implanted uh, into the mother's womb. And the baby uh, was born premature and uh, very premature. So the baby was in the neonative intensive care unit for, uh, for months, I believe. And then they didn't know if he was going to survive or not. Uh, but he did, and it was this, this miracle child that they have, and it was just this celebration that the church celebrated. Everyone was celebrating. Uh, and when we, when we began this series, um, uh, he's four years old, and he went to a pool party. And two of the children at the party began arguing. The family looked to control the two arguing children for just a moment, And the miracle child climbed the ladder into the pool and drowned. And the parents were absolutely wrecked. This is the child that they had contended for in prayer. The community is wrecked. And can I tell you, the church was wrecked. I mean, they celebrated this child. And now they're grieving this child together. And it's these scenarios they lead to what is considered the most ancient and enduring argument or objection to God, and it's called the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Uh, I don't tell you this story just just to pull at your your heartstrings, but but to say that this is so real, and it's real to believers as well. Uh, This question of if God is all-powerful, why does he allow evil? And if God is all loving, why does he allow suffering? Uh, Most of us know stories like this where we say, where is God in this? And and why does God allow this? And and in fact, um, 
Since the church began, we've been doing this series called You Asked For It, and this series actually came out of that because we had so many questions related to it. But um, almost every single year as a church, we've received this request. Please talk about why bad things happen to good people. Why do innocent people suffer? Why do innocent children even suffer? Uh, so we could ask this on an individual scale, or we could look at a global scale. We could look at catastrophes and natural disasters, like uh, the tsunami in 2004 uh, that claimed 225,000 lives over that in a matter of hours. Uh, the earthquake in Haiti that, that killed uh, 160,000 people just like that. Uh, and I've referenced in this series uh, an atheist philosopher named Bart Ehrman on several occasions. Uh, he, he is probably the most noted proponent of atheism alive today. He engages in uh, televised debates with Christian scholars, and he, he writes books uh, trying to dethrone Christianity. Um, but what I haven't mentioned is that Bart Ehrman grew up in the church. And actually, Bart Ehrman went to Wheaton College. If you're not familiar with Wheaton College, it's an evangelical Christian college. After graduating there, he got his master's in divinity at the Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, he was on his way to being a pastor or a scholar, you, you name it. Uh, but what happened was uh, he was confronted with the issue of suffering, and he just couldn't get past it. And in fact, I have a quote here from Bart Ehrman where he says, the problem of suffering has haunted me for a long time, and ultimately it was the reason I lost my faith. So I want to touch on this subject today uh, because this is a series on defending the Christian faith, and this might come up in a scenario where you are defending your faith, but hear me when I say this will come up in a, in, in a scenario where it tests your faith. You might have to defend your faith here, but it will, at some point in your life, put you in a scenario where it tests your faith. Because we all face these situations at some point in our life where it's simply beyond our understanding of where is God in this. So uh, what I want to talk about today is, is how we respond to this. And I would first say my first response to suffering uh, is is we look at what we know to be true of God biblically. Uh, so there are places that we could turn to in the Old Testament, uh, but I first want to look at Jesus himself. So in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And verse 3 he says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. That word for representation is where we get the English word character. In other words, what, what the writer is saying here is every characteristic and every attribute that we find in Jesus Christ is true of the Father as well. We don't have God the Father with one personality over here, and then God the Son with another one here, and God the Holy Spirit over there. Uh, they, they are all in unity. What we find of Jesus in Scripture is true of God the Father. So what do we find of Jesus in relation to death and to sickness and to suffering? We find a man who was well acquainted with suffering but took no pleasure in it. Uh, we, we find a man who took no pleasure in sickness or death, but his actual very ministry was in direct opposition 
to all of the above. Uh, we, we find an example of this in Luke chapter 7 uh, when John is in prison and John is confused, John the Baptist, because uh, he is trying to lead the way for Jesus so he doesn't understand why am I in prison if I'm doing what is right? So he sends this message beginning in verse 20. Uh, the men came to Jesus and said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I want you to see that, that a central aspect uh, of Jesus' earthly ministry was ridding the earth of all of these things that he encountered. When Jesus would encounter someone with sickness, he took no pleasure in it. He brought healing. Uh, his teachings echo his works. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And he uh, says after that, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So Jesus says here, when you see death and when you see destruction, it's not a work that is designed by God. And in fact, in the next verse again, he says, the good shepherd, uh, me, I, I have come not to take life, but to lay down my life. He, he said, I have come actually to undo the effects of death and destruction and sickness. And we find this again in the story of Lazarus when, when Jesus is met with the death of a friend and the impact that this death is having on those loved ones. Uh, Jesus, uh, who again is the exact representation of the Father, uh, he's not unmoved, he's not emotionless, but he's actually moved to the point of weeping. So in John chapter 11, just read with me, it says, uh, verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along uh, with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And then I want you to see this. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind uh, have kept this man from dying. I want you to see right here uh, that the question of why God would allow suffering is nothing new. They're actually asking it in this passage. They're asking, why did Jesus allow this man to die when he obviously could have, have, uh, could have saved him before his death? But what we see, uh, of course, Jesus, uh, he knew, even though they understood how could this possibly be for the glory of God, Jesus knew that he would bring it to God's glory. He would raise Lazarus from the dead because Jesus' very ministry, his method of bringing the kingdom of God to the earth was to come against sickness and to come against death. And, and you might say, don't, don't we see natural disasters in the Bible as a response to sin, as a means of judgment, like the, the flood and the plagues, for instance? And the answer to that question is, yes, occasionally we see that. We see it with Noah. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it with the plagues in Egypt. But the vast majority of the time when we see natural disasters and famines in Scripture, there's no indication that they were sent 
uh, by God as judgment. We see this uh, with Abraham and Joseph and Naomi and David and Elijah and even the early church. They experienced these famines with no indication that it was sent from God as some sort of judgment. So what we should take from this is, is God sending this as judgment biblically seems to be the exception and not the rule. And I just want to say that because I would caution you uh, not to be too quick to assume that a natural disaster must be an act of judgment. Because when we look at Jesus' ministry, uh, who is again the exact representation of the Father, it is a life-giving ministry and not a life-taking ministry. But even in the context of judgment, uh, the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in judgment, in taking life, uh, so we see that uh, verbatim in Ezekiel 18.32. Uh, it, it's in the midst of a passage concerning judgment, and God speaks through the prophet and says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the so sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So, so what do we say then? How do we answer the problem of suffering? How do we answer the problem of natural disasters? And the answer to that is, is there's not a universally accepted answer uh, that fits this question. But I'm going to give you what, what my response to this question would be. Uh, before I do that, I, I want to tell you about a car that I was reading about recently. Uh, it's a very rare call, uh, car. It's called a, a Gambala Mirage G GT. Uh, it's valued uh, at right around a million dollars. Uh, it can go zero to 60 in uh, just over three seconds. It tops out at over 200 miles an hour. Um, uh, the, the car is just so meticulously crafted and put together. There, there's no question of design behind the car because there's, there's so much put into the car. And I tell you about this car because it's Pastor Appreciation Month. And, and if, you, if you need an idea, no, I tell you about this car because I actually have a picture of one that I want to show you. So you could look at a picture of this car and you could say, why would someone make it like that? Why would someone design a car that is broken and wrecked and mangled like that? Or you could look at it and you could say, obviously, that is not the way it was designed to be. That is not the way it was intended or created to be. And I think we underestimate the power of sin and the consequences of the fall. Because when we go back to the book of Genesis and we read about the paradise God created, it does not begin with a world gone wrong, but with a world that was made right. I think we need to understand that when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, when they chose to, to walk in direct disobedience to God and to break that perfect relationship with him, it was not just humanity that fell. It was all of creation that fell. Everything under the authority of Adam and Eve, including all of creation, fell in that moment. We don't just live in a fallen human race. We live in a fallen world. And that is why one of the promises of Scripture is that the day is coming where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We have this intrinsic desire for a perfect world. Everybody wants that. We want a perfect world. Do you know why you want a perfect world? Because you were created for a perfect world. That longing was actually placed inside of you. 
uh, the Apostle Paul makes this connection between the suffering we face and, and the reality of creation, not just humanity being fallen. Uh, he makes it in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Uh, first he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy uh, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul recognized that we have these present sufferings, but they are momentary uh, in, the, in the context of eternity. But then he says just after that in verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. I want you to see what he says here. Uh, he says, we have been, uh, creation itself has been subjected to frustration and is in bondage to decay. Currently, the state of the world we live in is a world of frustration and bondage to decay, but it is not the world we have been created for. And in fact, it's not the world as God intended it. And then finally, what I would say is this is one of those places that takes faith. Uh, Isaiah 55 verse, verse 8, Isaiah writes, or, or uh, God says, uh, through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So do you want to know the truth? I don't always understand suffering. But I know that God can use suffering. Uh, there's an organization called Operation World, and they released some t statistics a few years back about the growth rates of the Church of, of Christ in areas that are under persecution, uh, areas uh, that, that have experienced severe hardship, uh, both through natural disasters and through human evil. Uh, in those places, Christianity is growing at its quickest, as opposed to places in the West and in America, for instance, where the growth of the church has, has kind of hit a, a flat place. But China, for instance, uh, in Mao's cultural revolution, uh, he took the lives of about 20 million people, 20 million people. And it's, it's uh, believed to be the most widespread persecution the church has ever experienced. Since 1977, the growth of the church in China after this has had no parallel in all of history. There's nothing to even compare how quickly the church is growing in China. Uh, estimates are that, that in 1990, there was as few as 30 million Christians, and today uh, estimates are upwards of 100 million. In El Salvador, there was an earthquake and a civil war that ravaged the country, and all of this suffering. At the time, evangelical Christian, this is, uh, Christians uh, in 1970 was at 2.3% in Ethiopia, or El Salvador. Today, it's around 20%. Uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopia has, has faced famine and war and violent persecution, uh, and in 1960, uh, Protestant Christians were less than 1%. It was about 0.8%. And in 1990, that number is over 13%. Uh, over the span of 30 years, it was less than a percent to 13%. 
So while we, we may not understand suffering, we can recognize that God can work in suffering. God, God can do mighty things even when we don't see how it's possible. And the other thing that we can know out of suffering is God's intention for us in suffering. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Renee, you can come if you would. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes, Praise be to God and Father uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts, comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, we also, uh, uh, so also our comforts abound through Jesus Christ. So we go through these seasons of life that are hard seasons, but what God does with that is he places you in the lives of others who are going through the same thing so that you will be a beacon of light and encouragement to them. The Bible says to grieve with those who grieve. Uh, and if you ever come across someone who is really struggling in this season where, uh, of great loss and they don't understand the suffering, um, understand uh, that they are not looking for an exhaustive theological answer to why God can allow something like that. Usually what they need is a shoulder to lean on. They need someone to grieve with them. Finally, we get to the, the end of the story in Scripture, and we get to Revelation chapter 21, and John talks about seeing this new heaven and this new earth. Now you could stand with me as I read. Uh, John writes, uh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven uh, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That intrinsic desire that, that you have for uh, perfection on the earth, for, for all peace, for no pain, for no suffering... God put it there because that's what it's for. It will be fulfilled. C.S. Lewis said, if I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You have been created for a perfect world to walk with God. ask you if you would close your eyes with me. If you're in this place this morning and you're in that, that, that place of, of how can God allow this, maybe you're facing the suffering in your own, in your own family, in your marriage. I'm not here to give you the theological reasons why that's possible. But I'm here to tell you that God has not left you and that it's in these times that we should cling to God, that we 
should have faith that he can take even the darkest circumstances and he can turn them for his glory. So Father, if that person is in here right now, I pray that we would trust you. I pray that in moments of questions, it would not be detrimental to our faith, but it would push us towards you to seek you more. Just as with Joseph, God, what his brothers meant for evil, you used for good. And when we face the the things of the enemy, when he steals and he kills and he destroys and there's destruction in our lives. What the enemy has meant for evil, we give it to you and we trust you to turn it for good. What I'm going to do as Renee leads us in, in, in worship is Uh, Just in the back hallway here, we're going to have a prayer team available. Um, If anyone needs prayer for anything, maybe you're going through one of these very difficult seasons. Maybe you just know someone who is, or maybe it's nothing to do with that. We'd like to offer prayer for you uh, at this time. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.